Well, good evening. What a joy it is to be with you guys, uh, beginning the last curve of our series in Micah. If you guys have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Micah chapter 6. We'll be looking at the whole passage tonight, verses 1 through 16. Um, as we've seen time and time again, this is a, a passage filled with judgment, so um, there's more bad news, unfortunately. But we're, we're rounding out the last section, we're beginning the last section. And if you'll remember, uh, there, the three sections in Micah follow a gospel pattern. Right? The three sections of Micah from judgment and redemption follow this gospel pattern with chapters one through three focusing primarily on the sin that we have and the repentance necessary because of that sin. Chapters four through five, again, focusing on sin and the failure of God's people, but highlighting this time in redemption the promised messianic uh, savior, even naming particularly the town that that Savior would come from, Bethlehem. And now tonight, we'll begin chapters 6 through 7, and this time the focus becomes on the sin, of course, and judgment, but this time the redemption focuses on what does it mean to live in light of salvation. So we could say that this gospel paradigm going from repentance of sin, faith in Christ, and then living in Christ. What does it mean to live in Christ? And tonight we have one of those most famous passages dealing exactly with what it means to live in light of salvation. And of course it does come in a judgment passage though. So as we read this, remember that this, though spoken to a people of God some 2,700 years ago, we're speaking to a people, spoke speaking, <laughs> that's that uh, Middle Tennessee slang coming out for you, uh, spoken to a people 2,700 years ago this word stands as true for us today. These warnings are not just a mean old God trying to get his wayward people to cooperate, but it's warnings like we see in James and Hebrews all throughout the New Testament asking us where our hearts are, calibrating our own hearts to where we stand. Just like each one of us, the people indicted in this passage would have called themselves people of God, people of Yahweh, and yet, it seems so often our hearts are so far from that truth. So let's take a look at the Word of God as given in Micah 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? 
Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. Thus ends God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is light and truth and goodness itself. Father, we pray that you would show us your goodness. Show us your light and mercy through the power of your word. Spirit, I ask that you would come now and open our eyes, open our hearts. And Lord, even in a dark passage, that we might see the gospel of hope proclaimed therein. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, don't you just love repeating yourself? I know my wife's favorite thing is her thinking she's having a conversation with me, only with me to respond with, what'd you say? We all love just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And some of us struggle with that more than others. I mean, I will be the first to admit that I struggle with making people repeat themselves. It was my foolish playing of bass when I was a kid without earplugs, making me go deaf young. But there are some people groups, maybe age groups is more appropriate, that repetition just seems to be their language. The requirement of repetition seems to be the way they communicate. Whether unintentionally or intentionally, people under the age of 18 or so seem to have the memory of a goldfish. As I look back over my own childhood, as I watch my brother and brothers-in-law and brothers-in-law, that's the right right way to say it, watch you guys parent, it seems that a parent, more than any other phrase, says what to his kid? What did I just say? What did I just say? Even teenagers, right, as soon as you finish talking, it's what, they've said, what you've said to them goes out through one ear and right out the other, and often they do the exact opposite of what you just said. My favorite thing on Wednesday nights is when I tell a kid to not kick the ball, and as soon as he does that, he just kicks the ball. Uh, and whatever they, the, the, the requirement of us to repeat ourselves over and over again, what did I just say? What did I just say? Well, the entire prophetic body of work from Isaiah all the way through Malachi could be summed up with one giant divine, what did I just say? All through the prophets, it is God reminding his people, what did I just say? Whether it be with the prophet before or mainly all the way back into Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. Because the entire prophetic literature is not just making it up as they go along. God's not presenting new things to these prophets to accuse Israel of things that he never told them not to do. But instead, all through the prophets is them reminding the people of Israel what God had commanded them at Sinai, what God had commanded them at the beginning, the inauguration of the covenant made with Israel through Moses. As we turn the last corner of our study through Micah and begin this last section of the book as I noted briefly earlier, we turn yet again to another judgment passage. And as they have all been, but this one perhaps most clearly than others, this one is deeply rooted 
and the promises of both judgment and blessing given to the people of Israel through Moses. Right, the, the, the message of Micah, of Joel, of Amos, of Isaiah, of all the prophets is simple. We could sum it up this way, that God will be faithful to his promises, whether to the blessing or the destruction of his people. God will always be faithful to his word. See, his covenant members, the people of Israel, now split into the northern tribes, with Micah focusing mainly on the southern tribes, even Judah and Benjamin. But the, law, the people of Israel were to walk in faithfulness and obedience to the law given at Mount Sinai. However, as we have seen time and time and time again, that was far from the case. They had done everything in their power to walk contrary to the statutes and the law given by God. And now, because of that, in our passage tonight, and as we've seen before, Yahweh, the covenant God, being righteous to his word, comes to enact judgment upon his people. So tonight, as we look through our passage, I want to divide it up into two main sections with a third hanging section at the end. And that would be we see the covenant indictment in verses 1 through 8. The covenant indictment. Verses 9 through 16, we see the covenant condemnation. So verses 1 through 8 is what God is indicting them of. What is he accusing them of? And verses 9 through 16 is the condemnation, what they now receive because of that. And then briefly at the end, I want to see, though, the hints of covenant hope littered throughout a passage such as this. The hints of covenant hope given even in a covenant indictment and condemnation. So let's begin looking at there at the, the covenant indictment. And we see first that Micah, as a prophet of God, is called forth as a covenant prosecutor. He is the one that God has enlisted to come before and make his case known to the people of Israel. You'll see there too in verses one and two that God is calling, calling through Micah all of creation to come as a witness. And this is much like we saw at the beginning of the book, right? God calling creation to witness to and against the people of Israel. Right? These parts of creation, these mountains, the foundations of the earth, right? the things that last far longer than any man ever could, these mountains that were there when God made the covenant with Israel at Sinai, he's calling them against us, his people, to bear witness against them. And that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That one day when we stand before God, the rocks themselves are going to cry out, either for or against us. The rocks that are always faithful will bear witness against the people who perhaps weren't faithful. But we see God coming in and to, again, to contend with his people, to bring what the Hebrew word arev, a formal declarative lawsuit against his people. Right? The, the fact that God is covenant God is coming in a formal capacity to bring a charge against his people. And what does he, he first start off with there in verse 3? He starts off with breaking down their assumption that it is somehow his fault. Breaking down this, the, the common assertion, assertion in our hearts and in our minds that somehow the trouble that we found ourselves in, that Israel has found themselves in, is really just God's fault. 
Look there in verse three, he says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Or another way of translating weary, right? How have I overburdened you? How have I given you too much to do? What have I done that is my fault? See, the people of Israel had been blaming God. They had been blaming God for the invasions, for the famine, for the sicknesses that they were enduring. Saying, God, why did you give this to me? Here's God saying to them, when have I ever done that? How am I the responsible party for this mess? You and I both know how many times we have said in our own hearts, Lord, why have you done this to me? Why have you done this? Why, whether in will for ignorance or, will for, or ignorance nonetheless, we know it's our own fault that we're in there in the first place. Or perhaps even if it's not just due to our own sin, but to anyone's sin, the, the sheer fact of asking God, why have you done this? It falls flat in when we look at what he's already done. And the Lord does just that. There in verse 4, he says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. In, in answering to these, these, these charges that the people of Israel are bringing to God, God gives them a history lesson. He says, I, I don't think you have the story straight. Because remember, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. And in fact, that four there that begins verse four is uh, what they call an emphatic particle. Right, so the word that is translated for is uh, a Hebrew word that's bringing emphasis. You could almost translate it surely. Right, you want to know all that I've done to you, for you? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. You really think that I've brought these curses upon you? That I've been the responsible party for this? I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses Aaron and Miriam. He goes even further. He doesn't just remind them of the exodus, but he remembers all the ways that his hands were with his people along the way. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, happened, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. He's tracing the saving events all along the way, from Exodus all the way to the entrance to the Promised Land. Balak, that great Moabite king who came and saw the people of Israel and thought, there's no way I'm going to let them take me out. Right, so what did he do? He, he counseled, he devised a plan. I'm going to go find a, a wizard, a sorcerer, and I'm going to pay him to curse Israel for me. And then, then I'm going to be able to defeat them. And who does he find? But a man named Balaam. He finds this man named Balaam, and he says, Balaam, I'm going to give you everything your heart's desire. I'm going to give you all the money that I can. I'm going to give you all the riches, all the wealth, but you just have to curse Israel for me. And what happens? Balaam perhaps tries to curse Israel, but as the Spirit takes hold of him, he can do nothing but bless Israel. He can do nothing but pronounce judgment on Balak and Moab and blessing upon the people of Israel. Here God's showing his people that even the things that people used against them turned out to be blessings. Or even that, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, these were the two towns that sat on either side of the Jordan. Shittim on the far west of the Jordan, 
and Gilgal on the far east of the Jordan. Beginning the, the entrance into the promised land as they crossed the Jordan River, God was with them all along. God was with them all along. And he's calling them to remember, look at this, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, that you may know. Remember what I have done so that you may know who I am. And here in these, next, in these, in these verse 5, we see a pattern. We see a pattern that was developed far back in history, going all the way back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 6 of remembering, knowing, and keeping. Remembering what God has done, that you may know him, and therefore keep his commandments and his statutes. See, the people of Israel were to follow this pattern of remembering, knowing, keeping. And it's the same pattern we are to follow, remembering, rehearsing the saving events of God, corporately, privately, our whole lives, writing them on the doorposts, writing them on our hands, on our foreheads, that we may know God in a deeper and deeper way. And then we start to see that we start to keep his law. We start to do the things that he has commanded us. And it's here that Micah turns next in verses 6 through 8. And we're going to spend the next few minutes really in this passage before we move on to the second half. But Micah turns, he's, he's turned from the, the, the pronouncement of judgment against Israel, bringing the, the covenant lawsuit. He's reminded them of what he's done, that they may know who he is. And then Micah imagines a sort of plea bargain, perhaps by the king himself of Israel, where the king may be convicted of his sin. He knows he's done wrong, so now he's trying to strike a deal with God. Right, the interlocutor, the king, whoever it might be, hears the accusation of Yahweh and wonders, ooh, how in the world am I going to get out of this? How am I going to be able to, to settle out of court before God really presses hard charges? And Micah shows us his thought process, even informed by a more pagan mindset. He says, I know, I, I know what I'll do. I'm going to give him lots of stuff. That's what's going to make me right. That's what God will accept. God, do you want a burnt offering? Do you want maybe even the nicest one I can get? I'll bring you all the calves you want, a year old. Or if not, if not, a, not a, a burnt offering, just one ram, maybe you'll be pleased with a thousand rams. I can find all the rams you want, God. Just let me know, and I'll get them for you. Okay, maybe not rams, but what about 10,000 rivers? What about 10,000 brooks of oil? I, could, I will spend the rest of my life finding oil for you if you tell me that's going to satisfy you, God. But even if that's not enough, don't worry. I can give you my firstborn. If I give you my firstborn, God, if I give you my son as a burnt offering, is that going to atone for my sin? And what Micah is showing us here is the way the pagan mindset, as we see in verse 16, the way of Omri and Ahab had warped the minds of, of God, the minds of the people of God. And this is Judah. These were supposed to be the good guys. These were the, the ones who had kept God's law, who at least had a few good kings along the way. And yet they've bought into the whole mindset of God just wants stuff. God just wants 
all that we can give them. Just like Baal wants our firstborns, the first of our crops, hey, that's what God wants. That's what Yahweh wants. Now, what does he say? With this pagan, perhaps king of Judah himself, interlocutor, God says, he has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you. So you can, you can flit around and do your best to find out what's going to please God, but he has told you what he wants. And another way of, of translating that, that phrase, he has told you, would be he has made it conspicuous. He has made it crystal clear what he wants. There's no, you can't read the Old Testament and wonder what it is that Yahweh wants. It's no secret. Even in Deuteronomy 30, after all the commands and blessings, Moses says through Yahweh, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, nor is it far off. The things that God had commanded were no secret. They were clear, clear as crystal before his people. And what he has made plain covers all of our relationships, horizontally between man and creation and vertically with God himself. And he lays out three things. Do justice or seek justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. You want to know what God requires? It's not, it's not all the money of the world. It's not all the rivers of oil. It's not your firstborn son. What he wants you to do, he wants you to seek justice. Love kindness. Right? Love covenant mercy. Walk humbly with your God. And we see that these first two deal with our neighbors, with creation. When you walk with your fellow human beings, whether in the grocery store or in the school halls or here even in this building, do you seek what is right for them? Do you seek what is right for them? Right, as the Westminster Confession, when it's exegeting, expositing the Ten Commandments, when it gets to uh, Commandments 6, 7, 8, do not murder, do not steal. Is that right? Man, this is embarrassing. I'm getting my, like, my, uh, my commandments mixed up. Do not murder. Seven is not steal. Anyways, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. When it gets to those, they remind us that in these commandments, it's not just a simple, hey, don't steal. Don't kill anybody. Don't lie about people. Westminster reminds us that in each of those commandments is, are you promoting the good of your neighbor? Do you give to them when, you're in, when they're in need? Or in, in not bearing false witness, number nine, that's bearing false witness. Number nine, bearing false witness, do you actively seek to protect your neighbor's good name? Do you actively seek, when people are gossiping about your neighbor, do you turn to them and say, nope, we're not doing that. Jim Bob is a good man. He doesn't deserve you to be talking about them that way. Do you seek the right? Do you seek the good? But more than that, do you love kindness? Do you love covenant mercy? And that's what that kindness is. It's not just you know, altruistic 
giving of stuff, but it's hesed love. It's the covenant love. Do you love with the love that God has shown us? But lastly, do you walk humbly with your God? Do you walk humbly before Yahweh, doing what he has commanded us to do? And in the, Micah flips these in a sort of inverse order, right? Seeking, seeking justice, loving kindness, those are important, but the, the start of it all is walking humbly with God. It's walking humbly with Yahweh and realizing that what God has done for you and who he is is a perfect being, perfect love, perfect kindness. What he has done and who he is shape your entire life. Does walking with God shape who you are and then bleed out into how you treat others? It's, as Jesus tells us, it is the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's required us to do. As one Old Testament commentator says, the point of this reminder here is not simply that there is a breach of one commandment. It's not that God is coming for his people saying, ah, you broke that one thing I told you to do. Now it's time to pay. Rather, it is the breach of another. It is the breach, it is a, the point is Israel's total failure in the face of God. It's not that Israel failed at one thing. They didn't fail to keep the, the, tent of bo- the feast of booths. Now, they're, now God is making them pay, but they have failed in every step along the way before the face of God. And here's that reminder, right, that if you break one commandment, you break them all. To break one is to break the entire law. And so each of us stand condemned, rightfully, deservingly, under the law of God. And even as his people, as his elect, promised people, God doesn't want your riches. He doesn't want your skills. He doesn't want anything that you can offer him. But what he wants is you. He wants you. He didn't choose you because he thought he could get something out of it in return. He didn't scan the, 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 the playground and think, which one of these guys would really make a good basketball player for me? But he chose you because he loves you. And he wants your whole life lived as a sacrifice of obedience. This is not Old Testament legalism that Micah is preaching. This is the true religion of the people of God. Trusting and knowing a God who saves means obeying and living for the God who saves. And all throughout the New Testament we see this. Romans 12, most famously perhaps James 2, where he says that faith is always active in works, in obedience. And faith is always perfected by obedience. Going even so far to say you are not justified by faith alone. Not in the same way that Paul will say it in Galatians, but there's something about saving faith that works itself out into obedience. 
See, because obedience is always an indicator of where our hearts really lie. It, re it reveals exactly what you think about God. In fact, we could say that whatever you obey, whoever you obey, that's your God. That's who you really worship. Just think how wild it would be to hear someone say, oh, I'm, I'm really a Christian, through and through. Love Jesus, he's my Lord and King. But you know what, I really think Muhammad did a, a, a better job telling me what to do. And I like to listen to him more. Or, you know, I love reading my Bible. I love coming to church and singing. But when I want to know how to live, I read L. Ron Hubbard. How wild does that sound? If Jesus is your Lord, if Jesus is your King, if Jesus is God, then you must obey him. In our, in our modern era, it's become so hip, so now, to call yourself a recovering legalist. It's almost as if obedience is a mark of legalism. Something going against grace. And let, let, let me tell you, it is grace itself that allows you to obey. There's nothing but the Spirit of God that allows you to obey. Israel's lack of obedience, Judah's lack of obedience, was the, the foolproof pudding that they did not really count Yahweh as their God. That they didn't really believe all that stuff that Yahweh had done for them. So now, in these last few minutes, we're going to turn to the covenant sentence. Right, the covenant sentence, and very simply, this could be summed up into the accusations in verses 10 through 12. Right, these are all the things that God's people had fallen prey to. The treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked. His holy city had become a house of wickedness. And look at how they had behaved. They had scant measures. Right, they had wicked scales, deceitful weights. In an agrarian society where you were weighing all things in trade, these were the marks of a man of God, that they deal honestly with one another. And everything they had was corrupt. The rich men behaved as tyrant lords over their people, but had infected, it had bled out through the streets of Jerusalem, and all of their inhabitants spoke lies. They were a city full of violence, of deceit, of hating God and hating neighbor. Therefore, God turns to his condemnation in verses 13 through 15. Notice what he says. He's going, I'm going to strike you with a grievous blow. I'm going to make you desolate. You shall eat but not be satisfied. You're going to have a deep hunger within you. You're going to sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with olive oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. And notice what he's doing, what these curses are. These curses are upending the natural order of things. Right? It's only right that you eat and are full. It, it makes sense that what you save, you get to keep for the future. Right? If, you, if you tread olives, you're going to get olive oil. Right? And yet God is saying, nope, 
None of this is happening because you have upended the natural order of things. You have turned and served yourselves rather than serving the God who saved you, doing what you were supposed to be doing. So now all the things that are supposed to be serving you are going to fall away. They're going to fall away and you will find yourself a desolation. And then in verse 16, he sums it all up for us. The wickedness, the deceit, the lies. That's, that's not living like their father David. It's living like another king, an illegitimate king who brought wickedness and evil into the land of Israel, Omri and Ahab. Those are their spiritual fathers. It's like when Jesus stands before the Pharisees and, they, and he tells them, your father is the father of lies. You may come by blood from Abraham, but you come from a far more sinister and evil father. That's what, the, that's what God's people have done. And yet notice as we close that all throughout this, God's command for obedience, God's condemnation, there's, there's hints, there's tinctures of gospel hope spread throughout. They've turned their backs on the Lord. They've forgotten both who he was and what he had done. They had followed Omri rather than David. And yet all the while, what does God call them? My people. My people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Oh, my people, remember. Verse 16, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. All throughout, as God is reminding them who they really are, let me rephrase that, as he is reminding them what they have done and shown themselves to be, he is reminding them who they really are, God's people. But more than that, he is reminding them who he is because, you see, the same righteousness that compels, that brings Yahweh in covenant condemnation, that same righteousness is the same righteousness that allows him to have mercy. And in Deuteronomy, as it finishes the curses, the blessings, the promises of destruction, Moses says this through Yahweh, or Yahweh says this through Moses. He says, pardon me, I apologize. He says, when all these things, these covenants, curses come upon you, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has given you. Right? If you remember what I have said, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Right? God is always faithful to his word. So that means there's always hope of mercy in the face of, God, face of a God who keeps his word. As we come to know God as a righteous God, we realize that he will always be the God who is righteous. He will always be the God who keeps his word. And as scary as that sounds, there is always hope. Discipline will come to all of us. It's always going to come because none of us can always live as, as we are called. And yet on the other side of discipline, there is always life. There is always mercy.
The covenant indictment was rooted in the law given long ago. The covenant sentence was given in the law long ago. And yet, at the same time, covenant hope was given in the law long ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you that in it you show us not just the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of true life and how we are to live in light of that salvation. Father, I pray that each of us would learn through the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, through the the slow, plodding discipline of your people, that we would learn what it means to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. Father, I pray that you would show us that even as we go out tonight, or would you remind us that we are your people and you are our God, that you are our God. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus through whom we can even speak any of this. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.